Hi, I'm Zach Davis, host of Jesuitical. As we've been preparing for Jesuitical's pilgrimage this coming September to Italy, OneDream has made all the difference. OneDream is this amazing educational platform with audio and video content on just about any topic, including Italy, presented by experts who all know their stuff. And OneDream is giving Jesuitical listeners a great offer, a free trial plus 20% off the annual plan. Sign up now at OneDream.com slash Jesuitical, and we hope we'll see you in Italy. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley. And I'm excited because we're trying something a little different this week in terms of the format of the show. So we're talking about abortion and Catholics and the future of that issue in the United States. And we've got some really excellent conversations coming up. Yeah. So first, we want to set the scene. Uh, We're recording this on June 15th. So we are anxiously awaiting a Supreme Court decision that could determine the future of abortion in this country. And if you're following the news, you probably know a lot of this already, but I do just want to set some of the facts uh, to ground our conversations uh, for this episode. So the case that the Supreme Court is deciding at some point before the end of June is Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is uh, con- concerns a law in Mississippi that bans abortion after 15 weeks. So if the court upholds this law, that would effectively overturn the precedent set by Roe v. Wade in 1973 and upheld by Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992. Um, And those cases created a constitutional right to abortion, meaning states were limited in the types of restrictions they could put on abortion. Yeah. And in May, this past May, a leaked draft of the decision written by Justice Samuel Alito suggested that the court was indeed ready to overturn Roe and Casey. If the final decision resembles what was leaked to Politico in May, the issue of abortion and its regulations will be returned to the states. When this leaked decision came out in May, we had a conversation with uh, Gloria Purvis from the Gloria Purvis podcast on the show, just kind of giving initial reactions. But we said we wanted to do a more thorough episode on the subject, and that's what we've got for you today. Yes. So we have three great conversations lined up. First, we're going to talk to Trisha Bruce. She's a sociologist affiliated with the University of Notre Dame's Center for the Study of Religion and Society. And she is a true expert on religion, Catholicism, abortion, and how Americans feel about abortion. Yeah, she really gives a great overview of what people actually think. And it's not really what you hear represented um, in the loudest spaces on social media and otherwise. Next, you're going to hear from Rachel Liu, who's a contributing writer for America. And she's focusing in on one particular aspect of, because as we know, abortion involves so many other interwoven issues. And so she's focusing on um, motherhood and what that is, the future of that is going to be and whether or not we really honor motherhood in this country. And finally, we're going to bring back a conversation we had back in February of 2021 with Caitlin Flanagan. Caitlin is a staff writer at The Atlantic. And in 2019, she published a really, really great piece called The Dishonesty of the Abortion Debate, Why We Need to Face the Best Arguments from the Other Side. And we wanted to bring this back because with Trisha, we kind of talk in theory about how to have these conversations. And with Caitlin, we actually have one of those conversations. She's Catholic, but identifies as pro-choice, but it's something she struggles with. Yeah. And, you know, I'll be honest, like I I get really anxious whenever this comes up for something for us to cover or talk about on the podcast, because it is like a super 
it's a super fraught issue. In fact, but what's interesting is I have this theory that people are more willing to either listen to a podcast or go on a podcast to have this conversation because there's like, it's it's a safe space, right? Like you've got a willing and interested conversation partner, someone who's going to be as charitable as possible. And if you're listening to a podcast too, in particular, like you kind of have this like relationship with the people having it, but there aren't all the risks of, you know, getting judged or hurting someone's feelings or saying something incorrect. So we thought this was really important to try and pull off. So I hope that theory holds up and that our audience enjoys uh, these three conversations with Trisha Bruce, Rachel Liu, and Caitlin Flanagan. Joining us from Knoxville, Tennessee, is Trisha Bruce. Trisha is a sociologist affiliated with the University of Notre Dame's Center for the Study of Religion and Society. Welcome to Jesuitical, Trisha. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, we're recording this on Wednesday, June 15th and at 10.41 a.m. And as of now, I don't think we have a decision on the pending Dobbs case. But I feel like maybe we should just start by you know, situating ourselves in the present moment. I wonder if you could maybe just give us a brief background on what like the current state of legality is for abortion and how that might change under Dobbs. Because I think um, a lot of people just see this as like a big national issue that's kind of swirling around without too much focus on the particularities. Yeah, I, th- I think that's definitely true. And I think part of the reason why many Americans don't have a full knowledge of the legal landscape is that given the Roe decision some nearly 50 years ago, it created a backdrop of relative stability uh, in the country as a whole that enabled the legality of abortion with restrictions. And of course, those restrictions were imposed by states. And we know also that abortion law is a mix of both federal and state laws. But right now we're in a moment where the federal landscape is poised to potentially change. And so suddenly I think many Americans are are waking up to ask different questions about what that means uh, for them, for their neighbors, for their loved ones, and and how they feel about it, which is a, a challenging and urgent moment for me, many Americans. Can you give just like a brief description of what Roe made possible and not possible in terms of restrictions on abortion? Because I think one of the when people are asked, do you support overturning Roe? Many people will say no, but then they also support restrictions that are not possible under Roe. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I I offer the caveat that I'm not a legal scholar. I'm a sociologist. So with that caveat in mind, married to many lawyers who would be better poised to answer this question. Um, But that is to say that I think oftentimes what happens is that Roe offers almost a symbolic proxy for the legality of abortion. So when many people say I'm for Roe or I'm against Roe, what they mean is I'm I'm for or against abortion. But but there are no uh, stipulations or caveats or conditions offered in that symbolic proxy. Um, And in fact, there are some stipulations and conditions uh, presented by Roe, both at the outset and also some of the laws that were passed subsequently, um, including, for example, the question of viability, which has come up in multiple Supreme Court hearings now. And so this newest case is one that, again, challenges how early can states legislate that an abortion should not be permitted and how far can they move that line, as it were, uh, whereas previously Roe protected at a certain place to say, well, you cannot prohibit it up to this given point. Now, the study that you authored, again, the title is How Americans Understand Abortion. I was reading it and it's basically what do, quote, normal people think about abortion, right? Because you mentioned that most of what we hear in media and uh, the larger culture comes from um, people that are 
involved in one activist movement or another, or they're a politician. Um, and we don't hear a lot about what normal Americans often think. And a lot of surveys get thrown around. But what you found in your study is that we can't really glean uh, what people actually think from some of these stats that get tossed around. Can, I'm just wondering, what was your motivation in trying to understand what average Americans think about this issue? Yeah, the irony behind the cacophony of abortion discourse in America is that when we entered this, we realized that we know surprisingly little about how Americans think and feel about abortion. Um, we might think we know a lot from a few different sources. One, we talk a lot about it. Um, the media certainly covers it quite a bit. Politicians talk about it quite a bit. Social movements are also quite active in this space. And social movements frame the issue in particular ways, oftentimes emphasizing more absolutist positions as a mean to underscore the values that motivate their position. Uh, likewise, Supreme Court cases are largely situated as one side versus another. Um, but if you dig into how Americans actually think and feel about abortion, you start to hear something a little bit different. And it's something, too, that's not captured very well in surveys, in part because the surveys that we give Americans on abortion, by and large, are themselves limited. So you can imagine receiving a question where you think, ah, I want another option, or mm. can I circle both answers, or how do I explain what I feel here? What would, what would an example of a question like that be? So an example might be, even on um, someone who might be firmly against abortion, might receive a, a survey question in the mail about the legality of abortion, or perhaps they're voting, so they're in the ballot box, and they hold that value so strongly that they're going to choose the most absolute extremist position. But in the interviews, we had people explain to us, well, this is what I would choose. If you ask me on a survey, this is what I would choose. But here's how I really feel. And in fact, if it were my wife, I would act differently or believe differently. And so ordinary Americans, when they're thinking about abortion, it's not through the lens of just political positions or legal positions or social movements, but it's what does this mean for me, for my loved ones? And quite frankly, this is really hard. It's a hard issue. Yeah. You have a line in the report that uh, most Americans hold neither extreme nor consistent beliefs towards abortion, which I thought was interesting. And and yet we talk about it in these binary terms, as you mentioned, of pro-life and pro-choice. So why do you think those terms are maybe not the most helpful way to approach this? Well, for one, there's a high level of inconsistency in those kinds of terms. So one person who identifies as pro-life may actually hold moral and legal positions that look identical to someone else who holds the label of pro-choice. Um, we also heard many Americans tell us that they were deeply uncomfortable with those labels because they, had, they were just sort of appropriated over time to mean things that were often very, what looked to be hypocritical or even angry or unuseful um, and just unproductive. And, you know, we overall, we had many Americans tell us we're just, quite frankly, not interested or not able to have a conversation with people about this, even with friends and family, because it leads to so much conflict and it's been used as this sort of symbolic wedge that it becomes really difficult to enter into this space where you can have a real conversation. So I think instead we tend to lean on this false premise that we have two sides to the issue and it's that simple when it's not. So let's focus now on on the views of Catholics in particular, who some people might be surprised to learn, given you know what our church leaders say, look pretty much like the rest of the American population in terms of their views on abortion. So just like the rest of the country, the Catholics are going to have some difficult conversations if Roe is overturned in the in the coming weeks. So one, can you just lay out what Catholics 
in general believe about abortion? Yeah, absolutely. So you're right to point to the fact that even though abortion has been oftentimes pointed to as sort of a Catholic issue and one that is, um, well, surely all Catholics are against abortion. In fact, it's a pretty messy view when we see that there, too. We see that many Catholics themselves hold opposition to abortion. That's certainly the case um, for many Catholics. But we also see many Catholics among ordinary Americans who are actually not legally opposed to abortion or not consistently legally opposed to abortion. Uh, many Catholics who would take on that uh, that label pro-choice for themselves or maybe would seek to take on both labels, say, yes, I'm, I'm very much pro-life, but I also believe in legal access to abortion um, for Americans overall. Uh, we also have many Catholics who themselves have had personal abortion experience. So in this way, uh, Catholic women don't look that different from Americans overall. I would add a, a couple caveats to all of this, though, that are important to remember. One is mass attendance. Um, so in fact, you know, a lot of what we see on Catholic views on abortion is grouping all Catholics together, regardless of their levels of participation in the church. And it is true that if you um, intersect that with how often they attend Mass, um, so sociologists like to compare uh, what could be called core Catholics who attend monthly or more versus peripheral Catholics who attend less often, you do see uh, pretty sharp divides there too. So core Catholics are going to be generally more opposed to abortion than Catholics who attend Mass less regularly. So the U.S. bishops have said that abortion is the the preeminent issue uh, for them. I'm wondering if either the Catholics you talked to or the non-Catholics, if there was a similar uh, priority um, in how they thought about this, either in terms of how they voted or um, how they lived their lives or what their advocacy was for. Was the bishop's opinion on that reflected among the people you talked to? No, most ordinary Americans, most ordinary American Catholics do not first and foremost list abortion as the thing that is leading them to the, the voting booth and being the final say on their their vote. It mentioned lots of issues like other Americans do. The economy, um, you, know, you know, what um, tax policies, um, the environment, you know, there's there's a host of issues that, that Catholics will mention as being priorities to them. If a bishop came to you and said, OK, how do we be more effective in our messaging on this? How do we how do we change our and minds on this issue. What does your research suggest they should be doing differently? Well, I mean, I, I think both in Catholic spaces and non-Catholic spaces, one of the biggest challenges is creating a safe and comfortable space to be able to have a conversation around abortion, because particularly with regard to the Catholic Church, both among Catholics and non-Catholics, there's a feeling that there is the church position and it is a you know, a, a non-negotiable and often seen as an absolutist position, and quite frankly, also not fully un understood by a lot of Catholics. But the the thought is that, well, that's a, a done and finished issue. And so if a Catholic agrees with it, great, perhaps they, they might feel more inclined to, to be involved and have that conversation. But if a Catholic might have questions about it, and if those Catholics are the ones that bishops are trying to reach out to and, and minister to and, and give a better um, set of Catholic theology or education and conversation around, then what's key is creating those safe spaces. And who's in our pews are people who have had abortions themselves, first of all. And then three quarters of our interviewees knew someone personally who had an abortion. And so until we can kind of face up with that reality and say, well, what's behind that? What does that mean um, for Catholics and non-Catholics alike? Then it's going to be hard to um, communicate particular messages around what a position should or should not look like. Yeah, this is certainly true in my own experience, but I would say most people 
avoid talking about this issue entirely because it's so fraught and can lead to a lot of judgment or it's it's seen as a litmus test, particularly within, you know, either in a political party, but also within the church, right? Um, you've got a lot of people sort of policing, you know, and having any type of questions around it. Was that true? The people you talked to, um, had they had much experience talking about this issue? And if so, what were some of the the things they stumbled through maybe on their their first time? Well, I, you know, I will say one of the um, things we came away with really strongly hearing from so many interviewees is that they really hadn't talked about the issue uh, and or that kind of talk did, um, you know, one of two things. Either it was left at the level of uh, very baseline views that were used as litmus tests rather than actual conversations around values and how values interact with with realities and inequalities and circumstances that one might face in real life. Um, and then the other thing is that, uh, you know, many interviewees shared with us that, uh, in fact, they had either lost friends or had um, hardship in their among their family along the lines of, of differences, uh, you know, s- certainly related to abortion more specifically. But we know that part of what's behind this, too, is the deep connection to polarization and partisanship. And among Catholics, um, as with many Americans, but if we look at um, the interaction of religion and political party, political party is actually a better predictor of one's views on abortion than one's Catholic identity. So what that means, kind of circling back to your question, is that there's potentially an opportunity to build build common conversation and shared values around religion that sometimes is interrupted by party and ideology and, again, shaped by the political discourse that comes out of those spaces that I think inhibits and hinders Catholics' abilities to talk across the pew. So bringing us back to the present moment where we're looking at a world where uh, Roe and Casey could be overturned, uh, returning abortion back to the states. And so it's an issue that people will potentially be voting on in the in the near future in terms of, you know, when they're voting for state legislatures and whatnot. Um, so I think we're going to start having these conversations, whether we're ready or not. Um, are you are you hopeful that this you know, maybe in the maybe not in the short term, but in the medium term, returning it to the states um, will provide an atmosphere where better conversations can happen. Well, I like to be an optimist for sure. Um, <laughs> but you know, the way you you stated the question, you said whether we're ready or not. And you know, one thing that we we definitely sense from our interviewees is that they are not ready to have the conversation for the reasons we already described, but also the level of knowledge around the law and. And quite frankly, just the challenge of translating values and often mutually held competing values into uh, policy is incredibly challenging. We know it's challenging already for politicians and lawmakers who are attempting to do this. But for ordinary Americans trying to sift through and sort through that information, uh, I think what's going to happen first is mass confusion. Uh, And I think Mm. Americans and American Catholics in particular are going to find themselves in a a crash course, or just wholly ignorant to the nuances of this this issue, and I fear that what happens in a landscape of um, ignorance, uh, you know, whether or not it's chosen, but just not having that access to information, is that we lean back on these simplistic measures of, well, I think this, and and here's here are these easy ways to look at this issue, which is going to make it harder to have what's 
needed at the state level, you know, a conversation that actually, you know, helps to shape laws that do provide positive outcomes for uh, women, children, men, families, uh, Americans who are trying to navigate these decisions at the local level. Again, the report is How Americans Understand Abortion, a comprehensive interview study of abortion attitudes in the U.S. by Tricia C. Bruce. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. So as you probably heard, Ashley and I are getting super psyched about our trip to Italy this fall. We're going to Father Eric Sundrup. It's in September. We're hitting up a lot of cool spots. Um, There's still time to sign up, by the way. But to help prepare for that, we are hitting up our friends from Wondrium. Yes, they have a course called The Everyday Gourmet, The Joy of Mediterranean Cooking, which I really was interested in because one of our stops is going to an olive oil farm in Siena. And I do not feel prepared to <laughs> be an expert on olive oil. No. And if you, you know, if you if you can't go to Italy, you can really bring some of the food with you here. This course is taught by someone from the Culinary Institute of America. I was really excited by it. They've got episodes about cooking from all across the Mediterranean, but they've got one that focuses on classical Italian cuisine from central Italy. Um, and so he gives you a step-by-step demonstration on how to make pasta from scratch, how to make a pappardelle with a ragu bolognese sauce, as well as with a salad. Um, so if you're looking for some like real how to do this in the kitchen type of thing, maybe impress some dinner guests coming over soon, you're definitely want to hit up Wondrium. And they have so much more. They have audio and video courses on hundreds of topics taught by university professors and documentaries to help you learn more about the world around you. And all of this content is world-class incredible, presented by experts who know their stuff. And it's always ad-free. I love that. We want you to sign up for Wondrium today, and they're offering our listeners a free trial plus 20% off the annual plan. But to get this offer, you need to visit our special URL, which is wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical. Sign up today. Joining us from St. Paul, Minnesota, is Rachel Liu. Rachel is a contributing writer for America. She's a moral philosopher and an associate editor at Law and Liberty. And she had the cover story for the June issue of America Magazine. Uh, The title there was The Next Issue in the Abortion Debate After Roe v. Wade, Do We Really Honor Motherhood? Welcome to Jesuitical, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me on. It is great to have you on. Uh, this is a great piece. Uh, and we're, we're, the timing on this is a little weird. We're talking on June 14th. So the decision in, in, the, in the Dobb case has not come down yet. It could come down tomorrow or next week or anytime before the end of the month. So just keep that in mind as, as we're moving forward. Um, but yeah. I'm wondering, so we, we learned about this leaked decision from the Supreme Court. And I want to know when that came out, when you read it, what was what was your initial reaction? What was your primary feeling to that news? I I was happy. I I don't think it's good for decisions to be leaked in advance. That does raise some issues with the Supreme Court. But still, you know, we've pro-lifers have been waiting for this for a long time. Right. It was hard for that concern about court procedure not to be eclipsed by being happy at what 
likely portends an overturning of Roe, though, again, I mean, that as you've said, it's not absolutely for sure, right? But it did seem like strong evidence that that might be what's coming. And yeah, I was I was happy. That was pretty much my first reaction. Now, in 2018, you, um, I hope you don't mind me referencing an article that's four years old now, but you'd kind of written a piece um, for the week about uh, looking on the horizon because people were starting to talk about what a post-Roe possibility might look like coming out of the Supreme Court. Um, You write with some trepidation that you're a little anxious um, for what it's going to bring for the country, or at least the political discourse, both on the right and the left. Could you say a little bit about why, if you still feel that way? Yeah, I, I I should go back and reread the piece. It was probably really smart, <laughs> but, but but I would say um, I think I was concerned, and I am still concerned about how that change is going to in, certainly impact our dialogue in lots of ways. Obviously, this has been a fraught issue for some time, and it could be a good thing to turn a page on that. But that could lead to greater polarization, and there's lots of uh, problematic implications there. I also do worry about the pro-life movement itself. I think in some ways, having Roe out there as a kind of a target has made it easier for pro-lifers to stay on one page, even though they disagree about many things, right? But I think for a lot of years, the pro-life movement was pretty successful at keeping a, a wide range of people under one tent, still kind of working for the same cause, even though they didn't agree about a lot of things. And that might become harder. This is going to be a really critical test, I think, for the pro-life movement when you don't have that one single target out there that is everyone needs to be shooting for, then their differences might become more obvious. And that might become really difficult for pro-lifers to, to manage prudently. What are some of those divisions within the movement? So one thing that's interesting for for Catholics is that we have a lot of objections to not just to abortion, but also to things like artificial reproductive technologies and surrogacy and some of those things. Not everybody in the pro-life movement shares those concerns. Clearly, there's lots of concerns about appropriate roles for women. There's lots of traditionalists in the pro-life movement who still basically think we should be trying to recover some sort of traditional breadwinner, homemaker split or something. And other people, pro-life feminists, who will say, no, that's not our goal at all, right? So that's another potential uh, line. There's also a lot of disagreements about what role we want government to play, right? Do we want to have huge social safety nets to support, you know, mothers and families and caretakers, or do we not want that? Do we want to, you know, focus all our energy on rebuilding a traditional family structure and expect families and communities to care for children. So those are all, I think, pretty live disagreements within the pro-life movement that might, again, bubble to the fore if Roe is overturned. This goes right into sort of the urgent question in your cover piece about um, do we honor motherhood? I think you kind of laid a, a case that across the culture, we recognize the need to do more. I'm wondering why this feels like such a an urgent question as the next step in the abortion debate. And maybe what are some some glaring weaknesses right now in the ways that we do not honor motherhood and parenthood? Yes. So so I think it's a it's a huge risk for the pro-life movement that they will pursue their agenda in a way that seems to people to be very unfeeling and very unconcerned about the needs of women, right? If you can show that you want to approach the pro-life movement, promote a pro-life society in a way that is going to be good and affirming for women as well, you're much likelier to get legislation on the state level and support from people across the political spectrum that will actually lead to a world that is 
better for unborn children and also better for mothers and for families. So that's why it's particularly important. Sorry, there was a second part to that question. Remind me of the second part. Yeah, what are some of the glaring ways that we um, sort of fail to do that right now? Right. So it's, it, we should understand that it's actually really hard. This is one of the things I talk about in my piece, not to take mothers for granted. So the fact that motherhood is, in a sense, the fulfillment of a natural biological potentiality, right, makes it easy just to assume women are just going to do the woman thing, right? They're just going to go on having babies and taking care of them. And that's just what women do. And we need to provide a certain measure of support just so they can go on doing that, right? But as long as they're able to do it, then that's that's enough, right? We don't really need to have, you know, uh, broader programs to make sure that their lives are really fulfilling. We don't need to bend over backwards to make sure that they feel appreciated. This is just kind of what women are supposed to do. In our society, I think... We kind of recognize that that's a problem. And yet at the same time, it's it's interesting because we still basically assume actually really enormous contributions from parents, right? So we want them to be supervising their children at all times, in all places, right? Whenever there's some particular concern about kids or whether they're doing well or not, you know, nutrition or, you know, reading scores or whatever, it always seems to be paired with, here's what moms need to do to address this. And I think mothers tend to feel like, you know, where are we supposed to find the time and the resources to fix every single problem, right? Now, you know, one of the ways that could address this, um, and one that's favored probably by lots of progressive people out there are more like state intervention and or support systems, right? Like having a robust social welfare policy. Your, your feeling in the piece is that, that that's not going to be enough. Right. So even if we had that, there, there are still, there would still be a number of ways in which we kind of continue to do what we've always done is, and, and take motherhood for granted. Uh, so why, why would that maybe help some, but not be enough? One thing I have to notice when people talk about all of these programs, and some pro-lifers are very committed to the idea that we can we can solve the problem of abortion if we just have enough programs that people feel very well supported in raising families. I think, look, do you think you can buy moms, right? If you just write a large enough check that motherhood will be easy, that people won't have any reason for not wanting to do it, it, it doesn't work like that, right? Motherhood is hard. No matter how much support you're getting, no matter how many institutions you've created to support people, it's still going to be hard, right? So that's why you have to have this cultural component where that's recognized and honored on a larger scale, because honor is the thing that helps us to make sense of heavy obligations that we have to carry, right? That's the, that's kind of my focus in the piece. Yeah. Can you explain why you chose that specific word, honor? Um, and you ha- have a very striking comparison um, between uh, military veteran soldiers and and mothers. So can you can you unpack why, why you chose that imagery and that language? Most societies historically have understood that under certain circumstances, it's necessary to ask people to go to war to protect the society from serious threats, right? This is another case in which we ask people to do something very hard that they don't necessarily want to do, right? They haven't necessarily agreed to it or decided that it's congenial to their plans. And I think it's interesting as well, of course, mostly in most instances, it's been men who have been called to go off to war. I think it's interesting as well as an example of a time when we really ask people to put their bodies on the line, right? Not just to, you know, give up some other interest or pursuit that they would like to 
follow, but that they actually put their very bodies on the line for something that's essential to the survival of their civilization. And I think another thing that's helpful about that is that we recognize with soldiers that we can't fully repay them for what they're doing, right? What soldiers potentially give up when they go to defend their country is just more than you can properly repay with, you know, a salary or a medal or something like that, right? But we try to make up for that by honoring their sacrifices so that people can understand that they're meaningful, that they're worthwhile, right? So in cases where people do give up something, including their very lives in some instances, right, at least we can make sense of what it is that we're asking of them. I guess one of the questions I have is like, how do you do that in a society where, as you put in the piece, we, we pretty much like thoroughly rejected sort of mid-century modern gender roles, right? Um, I think those are probably in the dustbin. Um, so w- what do you envision for maybe some like cultural traditions or ways of doing this that are um, that really an entire culture could get behind? Uh, because this is a, is a country with a, a lot of strong feelings on the role of women and motherhood. Um, so I imagine this would be a pretty fraught thing to try to pull off. Yeah, and it is really hard. It's interesting you say that that's in the dustbin, I don't know that I would see it as entirely in the dustbin. We certainly aren't going to pick up a precise 1950s breadwinner homemaker model again, but it is kind of funny. I already told you that I was raised in the Mormon church. So I was actually raised with obviously very countercultural now, but very traditional expectations for what men and women would do. So I've kind of experienced that, right? Like, what is it like when a subculture decides, yeah, we're going to socialize the men to be breadwinners and we're going to socialize the young women with the expectation that they're going to become mothers and, mm. and you know, be the heads of, uh, be the domestic presence in the home, basically. Um, and there are good and bad things about that. But I do think that the, the real hang up is we don't feel that we can just tell girls that they're expected to fill this particular social role simply because they're female, right? Because we don't really operate that way as a society, right? Just assigning people to social roles. And also because it feels reasonably like that underrates women's other potentialities and does exactly the thing that I'm concerned about, takes them for granted, right? Like, well, we don't, you know, we need to, you know, you're not going to go off and do other things, right? Obviously you're female, you're just going to be a mom and take care of the kids, right? We understand that that's what you're supposed to do. So how can we prepare girls for motherhood without taking for granted that that's just what they're supposed to do because they're female. It's very difficult, but I do think in some sense, the answer is going to have to come down to both honoring women who have done that work and also opening other opportunities and possibilities to them. So I imagine there are people who who are listening to this and are like, yes, great, support mothers, honor mothers, that who could be against that? But the reality is right now we live in a society that doesn't have great supports for families and doesn't completely honor motherhood. Right. Catholics have pretty diverse opinions on on the abortion issue. There are, there are plenty of them who don't support overturning Roe and, and, and do think that women should still have that choice. So I'm wondering, like, in, 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 in this moment, this very fraught moment, what would you say to those people? Where do you think you could meet them and what advice would you have for for the church going forward? So I think that most people today, there are exceptions, but most people today agree that an abortion is a very sad thing, right? We don't want abortion to be a huge part of our society, right? So that certainly seems like a place where we could meet in some ways and say, okay, well, what's that going to take, right? What kind of a culture 
would enable us to not have a lot of women in the position of saying, what I really want to do right now is end this unborn life, right? And surely that's going to put us in a position to agree that um, motherhood and the contributions that women make through motherhood need to be valued and supported more, right? Um, and that we need to have more appreciation for how important that is to the maintenance of our society. Is there a unique role for for Catholics in sort of building this up um, as part of like our, our vocation as as baptized members of this community. Yeah, I think explaining why even the smallest and most invisible person is still precious and worth protecting. Yeah, I think Catholics are in a uniquely good position to do that. Not that nobody else can do that, but we have a long tradition and we have very clearly articulated explanations within that tradition for why this is so important. What about in terms of, of building up a, a culture of honoring mothers? I mean, what besides holding up Mary as, a, as our right. favorite saint, what, what, what can Catholics do there? The blessing after the <laughs> homily on Mother's Day. Right, right, right. If Catholic communities are seen to have strong families and respect for mothers, that's going to be attractive to people even who are not part of Catholic communities, right? So you can always set an example in ways that are really valuable. And I think one thing that we could do is just try to have more events or opportunities to do things with children that involve childcare or where children are welcome. I'm not going to say that that never happens, but it's actually kind of striking. Of course, growing up in the Mormon church as a teenager, I was constantly recruited to work the childcare center for various adult events. It's just basically, I mean, it's a very voluntold culture in general, but it's basically taken for granted that if you are between the ages of 12 and 18, you're going to be regularly recruited to do stuff for the church. And if you're a girl, that probably means you're going to be working the childcare center a lot so that they can have adult oriented events so that once in a while, the moms can go and drop their kids off and do something with other moms. I've, that, that never happens in the Catholic parish that I've seen. I've never seen that happen before. Um, and it's actually kind of hard sometimes, even for things like when I was a, a new mom, it's not as bad now, but it was very hard to go to confession, right? I mean, even people were like, oh, well, you know, bring your baby. You can bring your baby to the confessional. All right, well, maybe I can bring my baby into confessional. I'm making a pile like three kids in the confessional, right? Like it, it's actually really tough to make it to confession. And, and, you know, I'm married and my husband is an academic, so he can sometimes be home at times when I can go to confession. Some people's husbands work so much that it's really hard for them ever to do, do things like get to confession. So those are things I think that Catholic parishes could do to support mothers in the period when it's really hard, right? What if there were one time a month where you could come to confession and there were a place that you could leave your kids for half an hour while you have your opportunity to go to confession? I've never actually heard of that. Maybe there are places that do it, but I've never no. encountered it before. And I think that would make a big difference. No, the thing I typically hear is something like, um, oh, to get your kid baptized, you've got to come to these classes no, there will not be childcare provided for the kid yeah, that you want yeah. baptized is typically the route I hear. Rachel, thanks so much for coming on the show and, and talking through some some tough tough subjects to weed through. I um, want to point people one more time to the title of the article, which is The Next Issue in the Abortion Debate After Roe v. Wade, Do We Really Honor Motherhood? All right. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. I saw the end before the movie was done. I got thick skin because I've been burned before. I got you don't know of Learn 
the Master of Arts in Sacred Scripture from the Oblate School of Theology, fosters a love for God's Word through an in-depth study of the entire Bible. Courses may be taken full-time or part-time, in face-to-face or online. Visit the website for more information. That's ost.edu slash ma-sacred-scripture. You can purchase gifts at Inspire Designs, an online store presenting the original artwork of Ursuline Sisters. See images of saints and angels, the natural world, religious icons, and sacred mandalas, available as posters, framed, and canvas prints. Go to inspireddesigns.org to see the possibilities. Joining us from Los Angeles is Caitlin Flanagan. Caitlin is a staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of books including Girlland and To Hell With All That. Welcome to Jesuitical, Caitlin. Thanks for having me. I wonder if we could pivot a little bit to an essay you wrote in The Atlantic last year on abortion and the sort of the dishonesty around the debates that we we have from both sides. Um, you, you start out this with talking about um, the stories that your mother told you, sort of being a nurse in a, a, a world before Roe v. Wade. I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit for our listeners you know, what your mom told you and what impression that left on you. Yeah, well, the context for the whole piece was that all my life, I've thought the best argument of both sides is an excellent argument. You know, what people who are against abortion say, they look at sonograms, they look at images of a developing fetus, they can clearly see that it's human that's developing in there, it's not a, another species, or it's not unrecognizably human, and that there's an act of violence to uh, destroy that, that life, that fetus, to remove it before it's had a chance to be born. But countervailing that was, my mother was a young nurse in New York City in the 50s when there was, let alone, no legal abortion. There wasn't the pill yet. And young women, girls, would get pregnant. And the consequences, I mean, this is one of the generational things that's different, at that time, the consequence of being pregnant out of marriage was that the rest of your life could be seriously derailed. You wouldn't be somebody that anybody would want to marry and all of that. And maybe they couldn't even tell anyone. And twice my mother sat in Bellevue Hospital with girls as they died from abortions, and bad abortions. Abortion is the kind of procedure that it's a very easy procedure to get right in a medical context with someone who knows what they're doing. And it's a very easy procedure to get terribly wrong if you're not in that context. And the obvious deadly thing is sepsis, deep infection. And what would happen is that, you know, young women would try to treat it at home. They'd try to take aspirin. They'd try to do whatever they could to treat the sepsis because they don't want to come in and confess that they've committed a crime by having an abortion. And oftentimes, by the time they showed up, it was just too late and they died. Someone who's been involved in the pro-life movement, something that that side can take for granted, I think. It's, there's often moves to dismiss the the impact, I think, of uh, what a pre-Roe world was like on women. Uh, you have this sort of gutting line in the essay that to be a woman is to bear the entire consequence of sex. And that was absolutely true then. And in still ways is very true. Um, what, so what do you think it is that 
maybe the pro-choice side doesn't understand about people who are pro-life. So, you know, they've, they've got this idea, this conviction, um, this concern for women in their lives. What do they not necessarily understand about the other side? Well, it would be unbearable for them to be pro-choice and really look into what that means in terms of the developing fetus. And there's kind of a, a denial of it. People will kind of almost cackle in a very grotesque way that they just don't care about that at all. Um, and I think that's a protective mechanism. There's no way that we can look at those images and not see that something morally wrong is taking place. Um, my feeling, being pro-choice, is that the greater moral wrong is when we would lose the mother and the child because abortion isn't a new thing. You know, it didn't happen in sort of the, you know, post-war America. It's as old as womankind is. There have just been times when women just, for whatever reason, personal, familial, safety-wise, cannot bear to have that child or it's not safe for her to have that child. And women have always attempted to... Uh, to do something about it and to end the pregnancy. So your article is titled The Dishonesty of the Abortion Debate. So I feel like in this conversation, we, what we really want is to be honest. And so you've you know, said you consider yourself pro-choice. Uh, I would consider myself pro-life. Um, and I think a lot gets lost when we just use these labels. Um, so I'm wondering, like, when you, when you say that, what does it mean to you? How does it sit with you? Um, how do you grapple with what it means? whether as, as, you know, as a Catholic or as a citizen? My, my feeling isn't, isn't about it isn't shaped by Catholicism at all. Um, but my feeling is that I'm not settled in feeling great about it. I don't feel great about abortion at all. Not at all. But on the other hand, I think the, honest of, the honesty of the abortion debate would be for people who are pro-choice to say, yes, I see what you're talking about. I see that, you know, certainly past the first 12 weeks that that fetus is rapidly looking like a baby and no two, uh, two ways about it. And as, and as sad and grave as it is, I still, I still think that for various reasons that I remain pro-choice. And I think that the pro-life side would have to say, we recognize that to take this out of the context of a hot, this ancient procedure, to take it out of the context of hospitals, and doctors, that we're going to have a lot of women seriously risk their lives. We're going to have them preyed upon by the, the notion of a back alley abortionist is a very dark and terrible thing. There was a lot of sexual abuse that came with that because the girls couldn't say anything. And we're willing for women to, to be desperate and to die in a very butchery kind of a way. So that on either side, um, we don't want to be honest. It's painful to be honest. It's painful to look at a sonogram and think I'm supporting that. It's painful to think if I can get this law changed within the first year, girls and young women are going to die in terrible ways. It's very painful for both sides to, to look at it. And I don't think there are, there's a handful of people that in my experience who are really able to hold both of these truths in their mind at the same time. Yeah. You say, you write in the piece, like you were just saying, this is not an argument 
anyone is going to win. The loudest advocates on both sides are terrible representatives for their cause. Um, can you unpack that a bit? Yeah, well, um, when the pro-choice side, I just remember there was there has been a TV show on, I think maybe it's on Netflix, it's called Shrill, and it's an adaptation of a feminist book, but um, Lindy West wrote it. And anyways, the character in it, the young woman, and she's kind of like a young woman in Seattle or somewhere, and she gets this horrible boyfriend that she throws herself at, and he's really horrible to her, and she asks him when they have sex to use a condom, and he refuses, and she goes ahead and continually has sex with him. And then the next episode, she's just blithely walking into a Planned Parenthood. There's no discussion. There's no sense that there's anything at all to be considered morally about this choice. And it's clear that the maker of the episode, the writers, um, producers, really wanted to show a scene of a young woman getting an abortion for reasons that were totally her own and that are not laden with any moral repercussions whatsoever. And I thought, wow, that's really vile. That's really vile. And it goes beyond that now. There's, you know, the whole like shout your abortion Mm -hmm. movement kind of thing that it's Mm -hmm. not even is there nothing to be like nothing to talk about. There's Mm -hmm. in fact, uh, you need to exhibit, you need to like say it out loud and show seems like a degree of pride that's very unseemly. Yes. Um, Although I also think about the fact that a lot of times I'll want them to be that side to be more seemly, if that's a word. (laughs) But then I think, you know, is it really that much of a difference to the developing fetus, whether or not the mother was Mm -hmm. shouting the abortion or being very heartbroken about the abortion, you know, so the the material fact remains. And I feel like there's kind of like an opposite thing that goes the other way where it's like, if you're pro-life, you'll be accused of not being outraged enough. Like, okay, if you really believe there are a million babies being killed every year, then why are you, why aren't you in like revolt? (laughs) Right. Right. And, you know, a lot of the pro-choice argument that I've launched here on the podcast is a little bit nullified or changed in that today there's no stigma at all against being an unmarried woman who's pregnant. So that's that that real urgency to get an abortion that occurred in an in an earlier time does not exist. And we probably at this point, because we have so many providers, so many women doctors, that I think there would be a system where safe abortion would take place within an illegal context. But as always, getting back to the Beatitudes, the, the, the weight of this is going to fall on the poor. You know, the poor woman who's young, a teenager, her parent, her father will beat her up if he finds out what's happened, you know she's not going to be the one who's going to be able to find that provider who will get it done. She's going to be the one who's going to be drinking a poison or, or inserting something into the uterus. It's going to fall heavily on her. And I, I, I can't stand that idea either. When, this is a really tough thing for me to approach as a man, first of all. But second of all, I was president of the pro-life club when I was in college at Loyola. Mm-hmm. And I met a lot of people and worked with a lot of people who, you know, took this, uh, took an approach to this issue that was, I would say pretty holistic that, you know, they recognize the bur- the extreme burden that's placed on women in in crisis pregnancies and, you know, worked to support women in a material way when they were facing things like this, um, worked to alleviate the, the systems that set them up for, um, to make difficult decisions like this, but also like did reject 
um, abortion as a solution to some of these problems. And after that, (laughs) I watched the pro-life movement basically get handed to Donald Trump. Um, And whether we like it or not, you know, he is a a prime representative of this movement. I'm wondering if you have any sense of where, if the pro-life movements to gain any sort of credibility in this country, what do they need to do to save, save lives in a very real way? Well, I would say I had zero belief that Donald Trump cared at all about abortion as an issue. I think it got handed to him in that the pro-choice voter felt, I don't really like this guy. I don't like his morality. I don't like what he stands for. But he's really standing for an issue that's number one for me, which is to end abortion. The pro-life voter. The pro-life. Sorry, sorry. The pro-life voter. That that's where... That's where he was. I don't think the argument came in. He never made a sustained argument, I don't think, that was compelling. But he just uh, held on to that position strongly for them. But I think that, you know, these are these are decisions that are made in so many different situations. There can be a mother who's had two children and has gone into, say, profound postnatal depression. Profound after each of those births, or has just been in a despairing situation within her marriage and knows that it cannot take anything else, or she may have had a terrible birth experience. And for her, the right thing to do for those children who are there, is, and for herself and for that marriage, is for her to go to the doctor and to have an abortion. Both sides have a really strong, strong case to make. And I wish I were more reconciled in my beliefs. I guess where I kind of, I never have had had an abortion when I was young, thank goodness, but I've known many young women who have, and who were young and now are my age. Um, and I just think to myself, yeah, their lives were able to unfold in a way and to carry on and to get their education and to get married and and to have their family life and and not have everything sort of derailed at a young age because of this consequence of sexuality so you know i can't say that i that i think there was anything wrong in those decisions but i will say it's it's anybody who says they can sleep easily on an, about this concept, they're not thinking about it. Pro or pro or con, they're not really thinking about it. Yeah. When you say that, something that I think a lot about is, um, I don't know. One thing that handicaps the pro life side is that we can't <laughs> we can't show the counterfactual to the story you just told of like, you know, because they had an abortion, their lives unfolded in this really beautiful way um and the pro-life side would be like yeah there was another life that we we could have seen even more even more life even some something even more beautiful than we can imagine um definitely definitely (laughs) i was working with a woman 23 years ago at she was a she was in a homeless shelter transitional shelter for women and children but she was just down on her luck right in that point she was a very together smart person and she had a six-year-old little girl and then a little boy. They were adorable kids. And I could tell she really loved that little boy. He was full of piss and vinegar. And we were just chatting. We were in her room because the kids and the moms in this shelter stayed in the same rooms. They each had a room to themselves and then common kitchen and so forth. 
And we were kind of playing with the kids, or I was playing with the little boy. And then she looked at him and she said, you know, I was supposed to have had an abortion. And I was like, what? And she said, yeah, you know, I got the ticket or whatever to get an abortion that would be paid for. But I showed up at the clinic and they told me I had the wrong date. And so they gave me another date, like a week or something later. And at that point, it was just too complicated. She had something else to do and she had the child. And so I'm looking there at this little boy that I've gotten to know so well over the course of working with his mom and with him and with his sister. And I thought, what would the world be like without this child? He's so, he's just in my heart right now. I love this kid. And his, it was such a cavalier coin toss about his being here. On the other hand, I say, I had a miscarriage. I know a lot of girl, women who have had miscarriages, very, very, very heartbreaking. And God does not seem to care too much about our hearts as women when he decides by whatever, by whatever mechanism it is to allow us to have a pregnancy that won't go to term and to cause it to end ahead of time. So, you know, the metaphysical aspect, the religious aspect, the physical aspect, it all comes together in this really, really charged subject. I think that one of the things that the pro-life movement really isn't going to concede on is some type of legal protection for the unborn. You know, we all want it to happen as early as possible. We could all agree on that. On the other hand, there's a lot of people who say, well, why? <laughs> you right. know, does, yep. does that does that life have more or less value? And mm-hmm. we could say it's more or less tragic. But in other circumstances, we think the sooner someone passes, the more tragic it is. Mm-hmm. So if that's a sticking point for the pro-life movement, and I think it is, mm-hmm. if we are working towards a world where we've set up the social pressures that force women into making these terrible decisions, whether whether that's what marriage is, whether that's where our social safety net is, how career development works in this political economy. You know, if we're working to sort of reduce the social pressures around that and also work for legal protection, is that a pro-life movement you could get behind? Or is that a type of project that you could get behind on a political level? Hmm. I don't think so on a political level, but I would say that it's interesting what you're saying. I certainly know that people think that life, many people and Catholics in particular, believe that life begins at conception. And so you might say that, um, as you're saying, in, a, in an actual human life that's out and about, the sooner it's cut short, the earlier it's cut short, the more tragic it is. But I think it's very different in abortion because you're talking about a baby whose neurological system is developing and, um, you know, a, a procedure during which the the fertilized egg wouldn't really have that we know of any sensory experience of this and versus one that would have, I think, a profound experience of it. But I'll tell you what to me is the untold story of abortion that I got so many letters about were people who were absolutely told they'd never regret it. And that, um, I remember one guy in particular is British and he said he and his girlfriend, they'd done it. They'd never thought twice about it. They thought. And then about 10 years later, she got really drunk, drunk enough that something was came out of her, which was this profound sorrow. And he said that he kind of went a couple of years without having it. And then he's been hit and still is hit by the deepest kind of regret and sorrow. And, you know, there's this absolutely adamant desire to pump out 
statistics and surveys and research that says it's extremely rare to regret an abortion, then I don't think that's right. If I looked at kind of the scope of these letters and and the range of the ages of the people, I think that um, we are doing a grave disservice to these young people to not say, we need to let you know about this, you know, as you're making your decision, you need to uh, have this information or would you like this information? But I'm very against forcing a woman to have a sonogram beforehand. I'm very against the state, very against the state being able to force an intrusive procedure on a woman to force her to feel guilty. But I think it would be very much okay to say, you know, we have some information about what can happen afterwards, you know, a month, a year, 10 years down the road. Would you like that to be shared with you? We could give you a sonogram. Would that be useful to you? I think all of these things will be helpful. And I think that let's not let the the perfect be the enemy of the good. Let's look at the fact that these numbers keep going down, you know. There are fewer and fewer and fewer women having abortions. And the more that we can understand one another, you know, it's what that's what the problem with the country is nobody wants to understand the other side, you know? And I think that the more whatever side we're on, the more we can really seek to understand what the opposition believes, maybe we can all soften a bit to one another and not be daggers drawn. But I think conversations like this are the best thing to do is to just keep moving it forward with open conversation where there's no, nobody's going to yell at the other person for, for their belief. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on, Kaylin. You bet. You guys carry on. Okay. Bye-bye. Before we go, I just want to remind our listeners that we would love your feedback on the podcast. We have our annual Jesuitical Listener Survey out. It is linked in the show notes, and we really value your feedback. What we're doing right, what you could do without, and and what you want to see next from Jesuitical. So please take five to ten minutes and fill that out for us. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Lowshirt studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashlyn Kinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.